Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. We are here with quite the romantic film today. Seriously, I was just telling Shay, this has so many things that I love. (laughs) (laughs) Number one being romance, passion, raw chemistry unexplained, very disturbing raw chemistry, but still absolutely captivating raw chemistry. Disjointed historical timelines. Oh my gosh, give me disjointed historical timelines. Give me flashbacks. Give me murals on the wall. (laughs) We didn't get text on a screen, but we got a lot of voiceover. (laughs) A lot of context. (laughs) I love it. And I love too, just the feeling of watching a story unfold and slowly getting the pieces put together and solving the mystery. It just feels so good. And especially when we're in 1992, that is a special treat as well. It is. We are talking about 1992's Candyman. And while there is a 2021 remake, we are focusing on the original this time so we can get Tony Todd in all of his glory. He's fantastic. And honestly, I love the ladies in this too. They're the best. Obviously, Candyman as a character is iconic in a lot of ways for representation and how much Tony Todd brings to this character. The bees and the honey. (laughs) And the honey. That's correct. All right, so starting off with our ladies, we have Helen, who is played by Virginia Madsen. We know her from Dune, Zombie High, The Haunting, The Haunting in Connecticut, which, remember that? Um, I do remember that, because I watched that by accident. You did watch that by accident. Wait, who was she in The Haunting? Is she the mother? I think so. I had a big problem with her in that movie. Well, guess what other movie she's the mother in. What? Better watch out. (gasps) Are you sure you never sucked a man's cock? Wait, I love her in that movie, though. (laughs) Exactly. Okay, I loved her in this movie and that movie, but not Haunting in Connecticut. All right, she's two for three for me. That's okay. That (laughs) Haunting in Connecticut is a special treat for me and me alone. And (laughs) we've learned that. Maybe we'll cover it one day, but I think- You know, I have a a lot of notes on it. (laughs) (laughs) I have a lot of notes just in the queue. (laughs) It's not the first time that we've covered a movie by accident or we've taken notes by accident because I have so many notes from Purge election year when we got our (laughs) wires crossed the one time. (laughs) And then The Hunt too. Oh my gosh, yes. We've gotten a lot better at communicating as of late. (laughs) (laughs) But we have some things in the vault, so maybe we'll release those eventually. (laughs) She also has a voice cameo in the 2021 Candyman, and she's also in the new-ish movie Pray for the Devil. She won a Fangoria Chainsaw Award and a Saturn Award for Best Actress in her performance in this film, which is great. Nice. And if you don't know, the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards are like the horror awards. Fangoria is a big horror publication, and I follow them on Instagram, and they just released the nominees for this year, (gasps) which is super fun. I think I sent you one of them being like, oh my god. I have to go and look closer. Either way, they're super fun. Then we have Bernadette, who is played by Cassie Lemons. She's in a movie called Vampire's Kiss. She's in The Silence of the Lambs. She's friends with Jodie Foster in the army camp, I think, when she's like doing that training in the beginning. And she's also an award-winning biographical film director, including 2019's Harriet and 2022's Whitney Houston, (gasps) I Want to Dance with Somebody. What? I'm like, girl, your career is fucking awesome. That is awesome. And then we have Anne Marie, who is played by Vanessa Estelle Williams. She has a lot of TV film and TV work, including The Cosby Show, Melrose Place, Days of Our Lives. And I put this one in because this one's for the gays. She's fucking Pippa Pascal in the L Word Generation Q, which may not mean anything to a lot of people, but (laughs) she is like the most sought after person in this show for like a minute. I just thought that was very funny. And she's also in Candyman 2021. She reprises her role. 
Some pre-plot trivia, the Candyman character is actually based on The Forbidden, a folklore-ish horror short story in Clive Barker's Book of Blood anthology. And we know Clive Barker because he made Hellraiser. I knew that name immediately. It's hard to forget him. It is so hard to forget (laughs) this man. While he did not direct this film, this film was directed by Bernard Rose. He served as an executive producer on the film, and I'm pretty sure all of the sequels. But in the book, Candyman is quite different. He is described as yellow with pale blue lips and a red beard, and his race and origin were never really made clear, although he can be read as a white person, being that the story takes place in Liverpool. Candyman's director and writer, Bernard Rose, a white male Liverpool native, got the rights to make the film. However, he changed the narrative and its location after visiting the film's setting, Cabrini Green in Chicago. And that information comes from A Brief History of Candyman's Themes and Origin Story by Ty Gooden. This is also the first slasher movie to feature a black villain protagonist. Virginia Madsen, who plays Helen, revealed that Candyman was intended to be in the spirit of introducing a black Dracula, which we talked about prior to recording, is absolutely on point. So on point. I think they succeeded very much in evoking that very sexy, sinister energy from a villain. And Tony Todd just plays him so fucking well. This was just a piece of fun trivia. If Virginia Madsen did not accept the role as Helen, rumors have it that it would have gone to the relatively unknown at the time, Sandra Bullock. Candyman was also almost Eddie Murphy, but they thought he was too short to be effective in the role. He's about 5'9", which helped Tony Todd get the role. He's 6'5". Oh my gosh. Okay, first of all, Sandra Bullock, I think still would have done a really great job because I just love her and I stand her in everything she does. But second, they didn't want Eddie Murphy, not because he's hysterical and probably would have like disarmed the entire audience. Exactly. I don't know if it's because he's too short. I think it's because he's too funny and he wouldn't have been scary enough. No, I could almost see like a Candyman spoof where you take Sandra Bullock and you take Eddie Murphy and you almost make like a scary movie of Candyman. And I think that would be funny. When was Eddie Murphy on SNL? Because I'm wondering like if he was on the cast at the time, if he probably already did a spoof. Yeah, maybe that exists and someone's out there yelling at me right now being like, Shay, you don't know this skit from... I don't know SNL. (laughs) I don't. I I don't watch it. I never have. I don't have a knowledge of it. (laughs) But maybe it already exists. Maybe it does. We'll have to do some digging and see. So I wanted to provide some context on Cabrini Green, this film setting, because it does a lot to provide a lot of tension and context. So this comes from the article, Taking a Look in the Mirror, the Inversion of Middle-Class Fears of Urban Decay and the Representation of Racial Violence in Bernard Rose's Candyman by Jacob Garrett. Jacob writes, In the 1990s, there was no more potent invocation of urban decay, inner-city violence, and general fear of the housing projects in the eyes of the public than the Cabrini-Green Homes development in Chicago. Situated near the Gold Coast neighborhood, which was and still is one of the richest in the United States, Cabrini Green stood as a symbol of every troubled housing project, a boogeyman that conjured fears of violence, poverty, and racial antagonism. It became especially notorious in the decade leading up to Candyman, during which there were 11 murders and 37 gun injuries reported in the first two months of 1981, as well as an incident just before the film came out where a young boy was killed by a sniper. The entire development was eventually destroyed, with demolition commencing three years after Candyman was released and the last high-rise being torn down in 2011, but that did not stop the endemic poverty that plagued the residents of the development. Even though all of the people living in Cabrini-Green were relocated, the demolitions didn't do away with the poverty and isolation of public housing. These problems were moved elsewhere, becoming less visible and no longer literally owned by the state. They were simply put out of sight, which was enough for the people of Chicago and the Gold Coast to consider the issue solved. 
So very much like we said in our discussion of us, though this movie has a lot of racial themes and it's certainly relevant and crucial to the discussion, I feel as though a lot of what Bernard Rose was intending when making this movie was making a movie about poverty and making a movie about the storied history of folks who are in impoverished situations, especially being that Cabrini Green, we come to find out, is built on the scene in which Candyman was lynched and his ashes were spread. So being that this space holds this haunted, storied history of oppression, I think Bernard Rose, even though he is, you know, a white guy from Liverpool, he had the best intentions of trying to find a setting that could realistically depict the story that he was trying to tell with Candyman. Yeah. So let's get into it. Yeah, let's get into it. So how do we open? Okay, so we open with a close-up shot of many, many bees. (laughs) (laughs) As we slowly zoom into the bees, we have who we can assume to be Candyman with a voiceover saying, they will say that I have shed innocent blood. What's blood if not for spilling? With my hook for a hand, I will split you from your groin to your gullet. I came for you. Woo! Yeah, now picture that much more slow and deep and seductive, (laughs) okay? (laughs) Such a captivating opening scene for a horror movie. This, to me, reminds me very much of Wuthering Heights. This sense of this troubled, outcast figure who is just so undeniably seductive, but yet from the minute you meet him, you know that there is something under the surface that is sinister, that is, beware, do not enter. You know, this man is threatening to split you open. But it's like you're hypnotized right from the start. I love it. It also just has this delightfully creepy music. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the score is so good. And I thought it was so interesting because I wrote, this kind of reminds me of the score from Us. Like the way that movie opens with all the bunnies, mm-hmm. remember? Oh my gosh, yes. And I wrote, that is so fun being that that music reminds me of this music being that Jordan Peele co-wrote and produced the 2021 remake of Candyman and cited Candyman as an inspiration in his career. And he directed Us. That's amazing. So I was like, ooh, there has to be a lot of inspiration being taken from this. And yeah, I think there certainly was. Next, we cut to a interview of sorts. I originally thought it was a sleepover. <laughs> just because anytime there's like two girls talking about tea, I'm like, ooh, they're at a sleepover. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just me wishing that that was my current reality. <laughs> but it is an interview where there is a girl and she is talking to who we will find out to be Helen about a story that she heard previously about a young babysitter who was working one night at a neighbor kid's house watching somebody's son when she has her bad boy hottie crush over before they can bang upstairs in the bathroom. She tells him the legend of Candyman. And again, if they say his name five times in front of a mirror, then he will appear. They say it together four times, not the fifth. She says, nobody makes it past the fourth. But then she tells her hottie bad boy boyfriend, what's his name, Michael? Billy. Billy. Well, because Michael is her good boy boyfriend. And she's cheating on Michael. Mm -hmm. And they really make a note to make Clara out to be this bad character because she has this lacy white bra and Mm. like a cross necklace around her neck. And he's fondling her and stuff like that. So obviously, there's some like undertones of how we're supposed to be reading Clara. But yeah, she sends Billy downstairs and says Candyman in the mirror the fifth time alone. 
And as Billy sits on the sofa downstairs waiting for her to return, he hears her scream and sees a rip form in the ceiling and blood start to drip down into the living room, which is very vicious. I guess it's supposed to underscore how vicious Candyman is with his victims. So vicious that his hook pierces through the literal floor slash ceiling of the house. Yeah, I read somewhere that the urban legend of Candyman is meant to be a mixture between Bloody Mary, obviously, Mm -hmm. and then the hook hand, one from urban legend, the scratching of the hook outside the car. Oh! And like the taps on the ceiling of the car, like the guy with the hook for a hand. Yeah, it's supposed to be like a mixture of those two things. Very creepy. Well, the baby is also killed that she's watching. Boo. Yeah, very sad. And then we cut back to the interview. And I love that we get to watch this flashback too. Mm -hmm. We cut back to the interview and we see that Helen is there and she is interviewing some college students for some kind of thesis paper that she's working on about folklore, specifically Candyman. So then we cut to a lecture scene. Helen makes it in right as the lecture is ending. They're talking about a baby alligator craze in Miami or New York. This idea that adopting baby alligators became a fad for a brief time, but then people flushed them because they realized they couldn't take care of an alligator. And then they swarmed the sewers of the city. But then it turns out that it's just all lore. Like it never happened. It's just oral storytelling. Whoever the professor is says that these are only examples of modern oral folklore. So we still, as a modern society, have folklore, ever-changing folklore, expanding folklore, but it just sounds different, looks different, etc. Just after Helen arrives, again, the class ends. She heads down to talk to the professor, who seems to be flirting with some other students, soaking up their energy. But then, oop, when she greets him, we realizes that he's her husband. Yes, Trevor, he is a dick. He is such a dick. Right when she gets him alone, Helen asks Trevor about this girl, Stacy. Apparently, Stacy can't even look at Helen in the eyes, so she's wondering what the deal is with her. Trevor responds, well, I guess that's because she's madly in love with me. You know, these bursting adolescent hormones. You don't really think. And Helen says no. Which is creepy because we have the information that Helen and her colleague Bernadette are writing their graduate thesis, which means Helen is a graduate student, which means it is a distinct possibility that she could have been Trevor's student at one point. Yeah. So this is gross. (laughs) But Helen is upset with Trevor for Stacey, but also other reasons. She's upset that Trevor gave an urban legend seminar to the freshmen while her and Bernadette were trying to gather information from them for their thesis. So she wanted an unbiased look on how first year students or how freshmen perceive the Candyman legend. And it's even funny because before she goes into this lecture scene, she walks by Bernadette having a similar conversation about Candyman and the story is completely different. So even just like hearing these different stories being told, they're trying to find out what it is they understand the story to be. And now their research is a little bit tarnished. Anyway, later on, Helen is transcribing her tapes from her interviews when a black custodian named Henrietta comes in to clean the room and she hears the tapes about Candyman and comments on it. She says that he lived over at Cabrini and everyone's scared of him and says that her friend Kitty knows all about it. So Kitty comes in to talk to them and tells Helen about a woman named Ruthie Jean who was recently found dead after she heard bangings on the walls as if someone was trying to come through the walls. A bunch of people called 911, but no one believed them because the cops don't want to come out to Caprini Green because it's a dangerous area. And by the time that they arrived, she was dead. And I thought it was significant that Helen asked, well, was she shot? 
giving us the lens through which we're seeing the story through Helen that she assumed that it was gun violence that mm-hmm. killed Ruthie Jean. Kitty says no, she was killed with a hook and the locals say that Candyman got her. So later, she's looking through newspapers in the library covering the Ruthie Jean murder. And I wrote that it was interesting that the newspaper she lands on has the headline, What Killed Ruthie Jean? And then the subtitle is Life in the Projects. So I'm like, is that a subtitle or is that a question and answer? Mm. You know what I mean? Where obviously it's like a subset to this article, but it's also the idea that the story surrounding Cabrini Green is that the abject poverty, gang violence, gun violence are all being attributed to anything bad that happens at Cabrini Green. So even though they have this monster in their midst, people aren't believing them when they say that there's a real threat that's killing them because the history, the story of the Gold Coast is that, well, Cabrini Green just takes each other out. You know what I mean? Which is obviously steeped in heavy racism heavy just disdain for poverty in its sense. But that's the story. And that's kind of the story that Helen is confirming through her research so far. This is even supported when she shows the articles to Bernadette. Then the dialogue just reveals that, yeah, everyone's perception of the place is it's just a place where there's a lot of gun violence. But Helen decides to point out while they're sitting in her very cute condo that her building was actually built as a housing project and is now a high-end luxury apartment and even shows her proof because I guess the way that Cabrini Green was built makes it so all of the apartments are connected through their bathroom mirrors? Well, hers is like that too. What I gathered was apparently because her building had a amazing view unobstructed of the skyline, the builders realized that they could make so much money. So then they decided to put plaster over the walls and do a little bit of makeover stuff here and there and then sell it as these luxury apartments. Mm. So that's why it seems like her building, even though it was built to be part of the projects, was then sold and changed. Her bathroom is also connected the same way. Because remember, she takes out the thing. The apartment next door is conveniently vacant. So she just punches the medicine cabinet through. Right. Okay. I remember one time listening to an episode of My Favorite Murder. And they talked about a woman who was killed because somebody came through her bathroom mirror hole. I don't know if we're explaining this the right way. So like picture your medicine cabinet in your bathroom. Picture like taking it out of the wall and then picture just looking at the back of the other medicine cabinet in the apartment next to you. The medicine cabinet is just popped into the cutout. You could just pop that out and then you could see directly into the bathroom of your adjacent apartment. And travel between them if you want to. Yeah, the hole is certainly big enough. So that's what she realizes because of her building, which sheds light on what had happened with Ruthie Jean because she had called the police and said that she was hearing things coming through her walls and the police weren't responding to her because she sounded erratic or they didn't want to come to the building or they didn't believe her or they thought it was no big deal. So we're seeing these parallels. And Helen also has this advantage now with Cabrini Green because she knows the layout of that building because it mirrors her building because it was originally built to be the same thing. But while they're at this bathroom, Helen and Bernadette give each other almost like being naughty at a sleepover kind of look where (laughs) it's like, did we do it? Are we going to do it? We're going to do it. And they say Candyman together four times, but then Bernadette chickens out. Helen commits to the fifth time by herself, very similar to how the urban legend starts with Clara in the mirror in the flashback. So there's a lingering shot on the mirror. I laughed. It pans over to Helen in bed and she's awoken by a noise. And I wrote, Trevor does a literal jump scare because he just jumps on her in bed. And you think she's being attacked for like a split second. But no, he's coming home drunk and wants to cuddle. And I'm like, who were you with, Trevor? Yeah, Trevor, who were you with? We know. We know who he was with. So the next day, Helen and Bernadette head to Gabrini Green to interview some residents. 
The men outside seem to think they're cops. And on the way up, Helen is taking pictures of some significant graffiti art. We see the word sweets a lot, sweets to the sweet, spray painted everywhere. And they find Ruthie Jean's old apartment easily, again, because the layout is identical to Helen's building, so she can navigate really well. Before they enter, there's a Rottweiler in the neighboring apartment that scares them, and some woman gives them a dirty look, right? Of course, she's suspicious of their presence. But they ignore her on the first pass and make it to Ruthie Jean's apartment. It's absolutely trashed. It's scary. It's covered in graffiti. I was like, girl, you are not CSI. Fucking leave. Yes, seriously. Because it is a crime scene. Obviously not one that has been like thoroughly explored or obviously cleaned up after. So when she enters the bathroom, like there is a lot of debris there and it's gross. Mm. And Bernadette the entire time is aware of the danger. She's like, we need to get the fuck out of here. Like she's just aware. I wrote, Helen sees the neighborhood as a lab to study and not a real place with real people in real dangers, which I think Mm. is important to really set up the arc of Helen's character being that she is intellectualizing the very real lives and experiences and fears of a subset of people who live in this housing project. And she thinks that she can just go in and take pictures of all of this graffiti on the wall. Like she's even saying like, oh, this is great. Like as if she's going to be able to cite it and use it in her thesis where Bernadette is being like, like, no, there's actual people here and we're breaking into somebody's apartment. Like, we need to leave. But of course, Helen presses on and is like, no, we need the evidence for my thesis. She's giving Scarlet energy here from as she above. <laughs> such Scarlet energy. And I wrote, listen, as someone who studied the humanities and has written a thesis, nothing is that fucking deep. You are writing a <laughs> thesis on urban legends. <laughs> you are not going to break the time-space continuum with your discoveries. You are going to be cited in a research paper at best. Mm-hmm. Sit the fuck down. I'm done. <laughs> I love it. Well, this leads us into my favorite moment with Bernadette. It's so small, but I love it so much. First, Helen makes it to the bathroom and finds the hole behind the medicine cabinet, just like she suspected. While she climbs through the hole in the wall to take pictures of the other side, which is really dangerous and scary, Bernadette waits for her in the bathroom. She picks up Helen's coat that she just kind of took off and threw on the floor so she could more easily navigate through the hole. And she lays it down over the side of the nasty tub and sits on it. (laughs) (laughs) I just love that so much. She's like, well, clearly you don't care about your coat. So I'm going to use it to sit upon because it is gross in the bathroom. I don't know. I felt like it was something I would do too. (laughs) Helen has no regard for her safety. Like she doesn't know what's in this adjacent apartment, but it's revealed that when she climbs through the hole, she's climbing out of Candyman's mouth. Yeah. There is a large mural of Candyman's face on the wall in which the hole that she crawls out of is his mouth. So she's kind of entering the mouth of the beast almost. She finds a shrine to Candyman and she becomes dazed as she looks in the portrait's eyes, which I thought was significant being that the effect that Candyman ends up having on her. She sees candy wrapped with razor blades on the floor, which I thought was such like a callback to how society like doesn't trust poor people. Like the idea of you need to check your kids Halloween candy for Mm. razors or they're going to be laced with drugs and like all that kind of stuff. And I was like, she needs some self-awareness and a tetanus shot after (laughs) getting pricked with these razors. Yeah, she's also wearing leather gloves and still pricks herself with this candy, which is to me like, how reckless are you being right now that you still prick yourself through? through your gloves. It just feels like she's having, like you said, a disregard for where she is. She's not minding her safety. 
Maybe she's just assuming that because of the life she lived and the experience that she has had as an upper-class white woman, that she will be protected somehow or that she's not used to having to take caution, but it is really nerve-wracking seeing her. I was trying to think, like, who's more scary to watch? Helen pricking herself with candy through her gloves or Scarlet running, like, face-first through a hole in the catacombs of France? (laughs) Scarlet, the entire time you just want to, like, yell at her being like, Stop! I mean, they both have means to their end, but when you hear that Scarlet's means to her end is like finding the immortal stone that gives eternal life, like it's just like, all right, like (laughs) both of your research pursuits suck. Both of you need to like take a step back from academia and get a hobby. I don't know. Right as she gets into the Candyman shrine area, her camera runs out of film. She pops back out and tells Bernadette, I have to get more film and go back and take more pictures. And Bernadette's like, no. (laughs) Which I love that. We love boundaries. On the way out, they end up running into the woman across the hall again. And they start talking to her. Anne-Marie is her name. She's very, of course, cautious, suspicious. She communicates her suspicions about Helen's presence as a white woman. She mentions that usually the presence of white people in Cabrini Green means bad news. But she ultimately decides to trust them. I don't know if it's like a woman to woman thing. Helen ends up getting her something because Anne-Marie's baby, Anthony, I think spits up on her or needs a rag or something. Anne-Marie decides to trust them and she tells her story about hearing Ruthie Jean's death because again, she is her closest neighbor. You know, she explains that she's really scared, not just for her life, but also her son's life. And she wants to bring her son up in a safe environment, which again, you know, helps characterize Anne-Marie. She does come up again. And so does Anthony. So later, Helen and Bernadette are at a dinner with a bunch of other academics. (laughs) Trevor is there. He has this insufferable colleague who certainly thinks that he's better and smarter than all of the like well-to-do graduate students that have come to dinner with him this evening. He even asks, how are the two most beautiful graduate students doing? So, what? Hate him. (laughs) But this gross professor provides some exposition on the Candyman legend. I loved Helen's dialogue in this because he's asking, well, how's your little thesis going? And she says something like, I'm going to bury you. Yeah, she's like, actually, Purcell, we're about to bury you. (laughs) But he goes on to say that the story comes from 1890. Candyman was the son of a slave who came into money after his father created something in manufacturing that helped them get out of their situation. So Candyman was raised in what he calls polite society. Candyman was a talented artist who was sought after for his portraits, and he was commissioned by a wealthy landowner to capture his daughter's virginal beauty. Mm-hmm. They fell in love, she became pregnant, and her father paid a pack of quote-unquote brutal hooligans to chase Candyman down to Cabrini Green. They sawed off his right hand with a rusty blade, covered his naked body with honey, and let loose a bunch of bees in a hive nearby, and he was stung to death. They then burned his body and scattered his ashes over Cabrini Green, where the projects were later built. So I'm gathering he's called Candyman because he was covered in honey? I suppose so. That's awful. Yeah. But this doesn't deter Helen because she goes back to Cabrini Green by herself. Yeah. I didn't even notice the scene changed at first. It's like her face hearing the story. And next thing you know, we're looking at her face bringing the camera up to her eye to take more pictures back at the Candyman shrine. 
I guess it's also important to note that she does seem like she's in a trance hearing this story before. So maybe she's being like compelled already and like called back. And we saw her get kind of dazed looking into the Candyman portrait's eyes. And now she's getting invoked in the storytelling about him. So she's under a spell for sure. That is a really good point because all of her kind of recklessness starts after she calls Candyman the fifth time. Yeah. And he doesn't approach her at first. So you're right. He could be kind of working some seductive magic behind the scenes that maybe is making her extra reckless. So she's taking more pictures and she comes across a little boy named Jake in the hallway. Jake says that Anne-Marie isn't home, but said that Helen would be back. So I just thought that this was even funny of like, oh, there's a white lady creeping around here and everyone's going to know about it. (laughs) But Helen asks Jake about Ruthie Jean and says, listen, I'm not a cop. You won't get in trouble. But Jake says, I can't say anything or Candyman's going to come get him. And then she's like, well, if you show me where Candyman is, you know, you would really help me out unless you're too scared. And I'm like, Bitch, she is totally manipulating this little boy. Do not trick this little six, seven-year-old boy into putting himself in danger for the sake of your humanities thesis. But that is exactly what she's doing. That's exactly what she did. Her trick works. The boy walks her outside where they see a lot of wooden chairs and like maybe old desks and wooden scraps piled high. Jake comments it's for a bonfire later, like a bonfire party. Okay, they move past it to some public bathrooms, it looks like, on the outside of the Cabrini Green campus, close to the street. And Jake tells a story about a little boy that was killed there. We get a couple flashback scenes. It looks like it may have happened in the 70s. It looks like it happened maybe a decade or so previously, which I thought was interesting. Also, I love how it seems like everybody has a story, and the person that is a victim in that story is like the storyteller. So like Jake is telling a story about a little boy. The college student earlier was telling a story about a young high school college age girl. Kitty was telling a story about, you know, a young black woman, right? Like, it seems like people are fixated on the stories where the victim is similar or like them. And it's so interesting you say that because in this story that Jake tells, the boy gets castrated and Jake's afraid of not looking brave. So obviously there's a lot tied up in like manhood and all that kind of stuff. So that is super interesting that that parallel exists. Yeah, this entire time I'm writing, Helen is not scared enough. No, she's not. Okay, so she goes in and she inspects this public restroom, which another reason I think this story must have happened decades ago is because in the flashback, the bathroom is still functional. But here it's like completely trash, destroyed. Sweets is graffitied on the wall. It looks like in human feces. Then we see somebody, a man, it looks like, approach Jake outside. Does the man say anything? I think he just silently approaches Jake and Jake points inside. I think Jake just looks up and says, Candyman. And then Helen's done taking the photos soon after she finds a toilet full of bees. Oh, that's right. Mm -hmm. The last toilet, the only toilet that isn't broken is filled with bees. Yes. So then a man enters the bathroom behind her. You know, he's in a leather trench coat. He holds out a hook in his hand. So he doesn't have a hook for a hand, but he's holding a hook in his hand. Mm -hmm. So he's almost like cosplaying as the urban legend. I am so sorry. I just had a flashback to the hash slinging slasher from SpongeBob. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it turns out to be just like a man. Isn't he just holding a hook or something? Yeah. Okay. So this man, it's giving hash slinging slasher. Yes, it is giving hash slinging slasher. <laughs> 
So he enters the bathroom, more men enter in behind him. Helen's like, I'm from the university. I'm just doing research. She tries to leave, but is restrained. And he says, I hear you're looking for Candyman, bitch. Well, you found him and hits her in the face with the hook and leaves her on the ground bleeding where Jake then finds her later. And it's interesting, this whole idea that you have people in Cabrini Green that are terrified of the Candyman legend and that are superstitious of Candyman, like truly believe in Candyman. But then you're being introduced to this person who's claiming to be Candyman. He is this supposed gang leader we come to find out later. So it's interesting how when put in powerless situations, some people kind of embody the things that they're scared of, try to add their own element of the legend. Because when this happened the entire time, I'm like, oh, so this is Candyman. So this is the guy who's killing people in Cabrini Green. And I think that's what we're supposed to think, too. We're supposed to think that the answer is gang violence or the answer is this systemic poverty-driven, crime-driven situation. And Helen's just been being this very unaware white person putting herself in these dangers in this situation, which kind of helps build the narrative of how she's perceived later in the film. Yeah, but Helen lives. She lives because the next scene, some time has clearly elapsed, maybe a couple days, and she is at a lineup where we see a bunch of men stepping forward and saying, we hear you looking for Candyman, bitch, to see if she can identify the man that beat her up. The man is there. She gets the guy. She steps outside of the viewing room to thank Jake, who is still sitting at the police station. So I guess maybe it's not a couple days later. Maybe it's like later that day, which is amazing that they got a lineup together that fast. She has a pretty mean bruise on her face at that point. So Her eye is so swollen. Yeah. But Helen assures Jake that Candyman isn't real. And again, keeps trying to talk to this boy. I don't know. She's very bold, I think, for being so friendly with this boy, Jake. And we never see Jake's parents. We don't know who is in charge of him. He's at the police station. He's still not with any sort of adult, which I think is interesting, too. Like, he's really isolated and on his own. But anyway, Helen assures him Candyman isn't real. And Jake seems to kind of listen to her and be a little bit disappointed, which I thought was interesting as well. He's also pissed because he knows that he's in trouble for telling at this point because the detective even tells Helen the only reason they couldn't book the guy who assaulted her before is that no one would testify because people know that no one is protected for speaking out of line in Cabrini Green and now Jake has. Jake has put himself in a situation where he can be putting himself and maybe his family members in trouble because he spoke out against the community for the sake of this white woman and even later, you know, we find that like Helen's face is more healed. She goes back to the university and talks to Bernadette and she mentions how ridiculous it is that two people get killed at Cabrini Green and no one does anything but a white woman gets attacked and causes a sweep in the whole place to be locked down and I wrote oh look she's getting it Mm -hmm. she is getting it Bernadette also has a surprise for her apparently Helen's camera film from the scene was recovered. So all of the photos that she was able to take that day have been recovered. She hands the film over to Helen and they split up in the parking garage with plans to meet up the next day and continue working on their paper. Bernadette gets in her car and leaves and Helen begins walking to her car. And then someone calls Helen. (laughs) We get our first appearance of Candyman 44 minutes into the movie. Whenever Candyman has dialogue, it sounds like his voice is coming from everywhere at once. Yeah. Which I think is a really interesting, compelling effect. So he calls her name and she looks around to see, of course, who called her name. And we see him standing in silhouette on the other end of the parking garage level in a long coat. If I wore that coat, it would like drag on the ground like a kingly cape. 
And if I wore that coat. <laughs> yeah, you would be buried. <laughs> <laughs> I would be buried in the coat. I would be the coat. I would just be the coat. Just an accessory on the coat. Just one of the buttons. <laughs> <laughs> to give context, Elise is 5'8". I'm 5'1". So the fact that she thinks that this coat would drag on her is just telling you where I would be in this coat. Which well, let's is, not forget Candyman is 6'5". Yeah, Candyman is 6'5". He could, he, could, he could wrap you up in a nice little hug. He could. And I would like him to. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> I will. So, <laughs> good. Well, yeah. So he looks great, honestly. I was telling Shay before this, it was really fun having a villain that wasn't really terrifying to look at. Like, wasn't a Freddy Krueger, you know, who would have like green goo spurt out of his skin or like, you know, Michael Myers with a emotionless mask. Having this human with this Dracula, Wuthering Heights sex appeal was just so interesting. Kind of like Steve from Fresh. Like, yes! Steve was the same way. Yeah. Like, it's such an interesting experience watching a horror movie when the villain is... Daddy? Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can, I can cut that out. <laughs> I think that it's the perfect way to say it, though. And we did have Daddy villain with Pinhead, but he was still very unsettling to look at. And so is Frank. And so is Frank. Frank, no. <laughs> But yeah, when the villain is daddy, like, where does that leave you? What do you do? It just adds such an interesting layer to the viewing experience. Especially because he is bringing some power play in with this dialogue. He says, Helen, I came for you. She's like, do I know you? (laughs) (laughs) He's like, no, but you doubted me. You are not content with the story, so I was obliged to come. Be my victim. Be my victim. I am the writing on the wall, the whisper in the classroom. Without these things, I am nothing. So now I must shed innocent blood. Come with me. Listen, we haven't said everything's a dick for a while. Oh, yeah. But I would like to add a subplot that everything (laughs) is ejaculation. This man says come so much and it has to be on purpose. It must be. I came for you. Yes. Come with me, which is also so erotic. Come with me. From the minute we see him in the same screen with Helen, there's this connection. And like you said, she's hypnotized. And the way she's looking at him, she's looking at him as if she knows him or already loves him. Like she has this like slight furrowed brow and these big eyes and a single tear down her cheek. It almost looks like a reunion. It's so much so fast. It's wild. And even the idea that bees have stingers. (gasps) Everything is penetration. (laughs) (laughs) And make this honey. Like, isn't honey like... Yes, honey. Oh, my God. Honey candy man. (laughs) (laughs) We're getting it. Oh, my gosh. Candy man by Christina Aguilera. (laughs) Just listen to that song. And I bet there are going to be a lot of parallels to the sex appeal of Candyman himself. Well, it's interesting that you brought up how Helen looks in this scene. Because I actually have a little bit of fun during plot (gasps) trivia about this. So Virginia Madsen was actually hypnotized in her first few scenes filming with Tony Todd as Candyman. She was put under hypnosis and had trigger phrases to bring her back out, especially in that scene in the parking garage. She is under hypnosis. She eventually asked for this method to stop because she became too uncomfortable not remembering filming the scenes. (gasps) Oh my word. Yeah. Wow, that's something. So she is legitimately under a spell in these first few scenes where she is thinking of Candyman. Wow. I thought she was going to say something like she had to stop because she was falling in love with Tony Todd. 
No, but, <laughs> no, but I also did read that they made Tony Todd and Virginia Madsen take ballroom dancing classes to build their intimacy and to build some level of trust between the actors so that they would effortlessly appear in love. I love that. When we talked about Pearl and Pearl's mother being the intimacy director on X, mm-hmm. ever since then, I've been thinking about like what an intimacy coach would do and how that is so essential and important to movies. Like thinking about what people do to make cast members comfortable to get the most or the best results rather for a film scene is so interesting. So I love picturing these two ballroom dancing. That's really neat. But Candyman advances upon her. She is motionless and crying, definitely entranced. Some more bees fill the screen to transition us out. And then Helen wakes to the sound of Anne-Marie screaming, and she is covered in blood on Anne-Marie's bathroom floor. She has a gaping wound in her torso, but she seems to be okay enough where the adrenaline has now brought her to her feet. She grabs a nearby knife for defense, we can assume, and heads out into Anne-Marie's living room where she sees Anne-Marie sobbing over her son's crib. Blood is smeared on the walls. Anne-Marie turns, sees Helen, starts scream yelling at her, where is my baby? What did you do with my baby? So even though there's blood, we know that Anthony is missing. We don't know if he's alive or dead. The Rottweiler is dead. Oh my God, that's right. Because she finds the decapitated head of the Rottweiler next to a meat cleaver and she picks up the meat cleaver to defend herself because she thinks there's somebody else. Oh yeah, it could be Candyman. Anne-Marie approaches her. She starts physically fighting with her. She thinks, of course, because of the way that it looks, that Helen is the one that has wreaked this havoc on her life in her apartment. Helen, I guess, in self-defense, takes a whack at Anne-Marie's arm with the meat cleaver. So Anne-Marie backs off a little bit, falls to the ground in pain, having been struck with this cleaver. And right then the door is busted open. The police have arrived and they have caught this bloody, bloody scene. Anne-Marie on the floor crying with Helen holding a meat cleaver, looking very, very guilty. (laughs) Helen's at the police station. She's forced to strip and give her clothes over for evidence as she sobs. It's a very sad scene. But I also think this confirms that she actually didn't have a gaping wound in her stomach because she wasn't harmed. She was just covered in blood. I guess you're right. It just looked like it. Yeah, she was just covered in blood. Did she kill the dog? We don't know. Like, how was she covered in blood? Well, this is a question that I think we're going to end up asking ourselves again and again. And again and again. (laughs) Because we don't know. Because we don't know. (laughs) She tries to tell her side of the story to the detective, but she's very coldly just read her rights and she is not believed. And she tries to call Trevor, but he's not home because he's probably off being a salute with his fucking students. Yeah, not a salute in a fun way. Not not a sex positive <laughs> no. way. In a completely sex negative way. Yeah, sex negative. <laughs> <laughs> but he eventually gets to her after she's held in a cell for many, many hours, I'm assuming. There is a media mob outside. You know, she's covered with a jacket to hide her face. They watch news coverage of the situation. It looks like the news hasn't gotten a hold of her name. But the news is also speculating baby Anthony's fate. He still has not been found. Nobody knows where he is, if he's alive or dead. Helen's lawyer now is on the scene. He questions her about what happened, but she insists, I don't know what happened. I woke up and she tells what we've already seen. Very mysterious. Helen is taking a nice little relaxing bath. I was like getting prepped for Nightmare on Elm Street. I was like, oh my God, that hook's going to come through the water. Oh my God. Like I was like prepping myself for it. Trevor leaves, said that he has to go back to the university to pick up some work. But she asks, well, where were you last night then? Mm -hmm. He insists that he was sound asleep. 
He's a liar. He's a liar. A dirty liar. Because we did get a panning shot of the empty bed when the phone rang. So we know for a fact he wasn't home. Right. And it was also 3 a.m. I think we get a shot of that clock too, which is like, how do you justify not being there at 3 a.m.? So he leaves again to go pick up some work from campus and she ends up getting out of the tub. I said she drinks a much needed brewski. Okay. Oh, yeah. She sits down and starts going through her picture slides. She notices in the background of one of the slides that there is the figure of the man that she saw in the parking garage. She ponders what could be going on. She approaches her bathroom mirror and I thought she was going to call Candyman, but she just opens it. Once she shuts it, oop, a claw busts through the glass mirror, which is so scary because like you think that you're in the clear and you're not because a claw busts through. She runs out of the bathroom in her apartment. She knows Candyman is coming after her now. She gets to the hallway, but sees him at the end of the hallway. So he is outside the unit now. Well, fun fact about this too, Virginia Madsen did not know the hook was going to fly through the wall. (laughs) So her reaction is completely 100% genuine. I think it's so cruel. I think it's so cruel (laughs) that they would do that to her. (laughs) Anytime I hear of somebody who is going through real unscripted trauma in a horror movie scene, like I'm thinking of The Shining as well. Yeah, of course. Because there are really well-known examples Unfortunately, that's not the end of the surprises of Virginia Madsen in this movie. I'll bring up some more that happened later. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, she runs back inside, grabs a knife, calls 911, but Candyman appears behind her in the apartment. He starts talking again, and we all love when he speaks. He says, do you believe in me? I have the child. Allow me to take you or he will die in your place. Your disbelief destroyed the faith of my congregation. Without them, I am nothing. So I was obliged to come. And now I will kill you. (laughs) Your death will be a tale to frighten children to make lovers cling closer in their rapture. Come with me and be immortal. And I just wrote, Tony Todd is hot. (laughs) And I think it's interesting, too, that this is the first mention of a congregation. I thought of Freddy in Nightmare on Elm Street. Him being, again, this like whisper in the hallway or the knowledge or memory of this person is what keeps him as powerful as he is. Yeah. And I'm wondering if the attention being put on the decoy Candyman getting arrested is taking power away from Candyman in some respect. Like people are starting to acknowledge like, oh, it was just this gang member. Oh, it was just this guy with a hook, but it's not this urban legend. So now he needs to make an example out of Helen in a way. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Poor Bernadette. Wrong place, wrong time. She shows up trying to hang out with her friend, make her feel better after getting arrested, enters the apartment, even though we see Helen struggling to tell Bernadette not to come in, not to come in, but she's incapacitated. She can't reach her with her voice. Bernadette enters the apartment where upon her entrance, she is promptly killed by Candyman. Off screen, we don't see it happen. Next, Trevor comes home and finds a bloody scene, again, reminiscent of Anne-Marie's apartment. Helen is lying on the floor holding a knife. The police come. Helen is held in one of the bedrooms. But before she could be fully sedated, she runs out and finds Bernadette's dead body, which is such a heartbreaking scene. I was really tricking myself into thinking that we were going to make it through this movie without Bernadette dying. Helen is now formally taken in the back of a police car to some kind of facility where she could be monitored and sedated. So Helen is driven to the station and is kind of going in and out of consciousness where she gets another voiceover from Candyman speaking to her. 
He says, why do you want to live? If you would just learn a little from me, you would not want to live. I am rumor. It is a blessed condition, believe me, to be whispered about at street corners, to live in other people's dreams, but not have to be. And she's seeing visions of baby Anthony in the walls. So Mm. we know that baby Anthony is alive. It's almost interesting, too, because this dialogue from Candyman makes me think of his origin story, the fact that he fell in love and was murdered for falling in love and obviously, like, being in an interracial relationship, and he gets his power from the rumors that are about him. It's almost like Babadook in that way, too, Yeah, where it's like, the more you deny, the stronger I get, that type of thing, where he's like, I want to give you this power. I want to give you this ability to be whispered about, to not have to experience all of the things that you are. So it's like, he's having threatening her life but also very half threatening like i want to give you this element of prestige so we can be together he's like charming depressed art student boy yes with this monologue reads a lot of Camus in his spare yes. time yes yes reminds me slightly of my ex <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me slightly of me in my worst form in college <laughs> Helen prays for Candyman not to kill the baby. She's in and out of consciousness as she's wheeled into the hospital. She's restrained on a bed. She even says, you can't leave me here. I can't defend myself. And I wrote, this sequence reminds me a lot of the Invisible Man. (sighs) When Cecilia gets sedated and Adrian's in the room, she's like, he's in the room, but you can't see him. Like the fact that (sighs) like the crazy lady, quote unquote, narrative, it's, it felt really powerful to me. Mm Mm-hmm. She's left alone, and very shortly after, Candyman appears floating above her in the bed. He asks for a kiss. She starts freaking out, flailing about, crying, screaming. The staff come, and they sedate her. Meanwhile, we get another flash to the Candyman lair, where he is taking care of baby Anthony. It looks like he's feeding him honey, I suppose, to keep him alive. Which, can babies eat that? Well, that was my question, because (laughs) when we are back with Helen, she's still strapped to the bed, and we find out that she has been admitted and on drugs for a month. Yeah. She has a meeting with a psychiatrist, and she's told she's being charged with first-degree murder, and I wrote, who is feeding Anthony? (laughs) It's Candyman. He's got all that honey, I guess. Changing his diaper with one (laughs) hook? (laughs) I mean, I guess he can, like, rip it apart pretty nice, because he's got a nice, sharp, blunt object, but, like, that baby needs a lot. He's a growing boy. That's a good point. Has he changed it? Does he have outfits? No. He's got formula? Is he just living on honey? It's been a month. That's a really good point. I mean, he is daddy right now. He is daddy. (laughs) Well, good thing he's daddy because he can take care of this baby. So yeah, back to this interview. Helen is talking to Dr. Burke. She has been charged with first degree murder of Bernadette, which again, extra cruel because we know Bernadette was her best friend. He asks her to tell him what happened in her apartment. She's silent at first. But then he shows her the footage of her first night, the moment we just talked about where Candyman appears above her and she starts screaming and freaking out. But in the video, we can't see Candyman at all. She's completely alone in the room. This encourages her to speak up and she says, I can prove my innocence by calling the Candyman here. So she turns to the mirror on the office wall, calls Candyman. I love the dramatic pause between the fourth and fifth time. At first, he doesn't appear, even though the choral music is starting to heighten and make us feel like his presence is inevitable. But then, oop, the doctor is stabbed and killed with Candyman's hook from behind in a very scary kill. Candyman tells Helen that they will meet tonight. He says, your mind now, tonight our congregation shall witness a new miracle. 
Mm-hmm. He cuts her straps loose and she knows that she has to make a break for it. She makes it out the window of the office, scales the building for just a little bit, and then knocks on the window of a neighboring room. A nurse lets her in, and as Helen jumps in the room, she uses the nurse to break her fall, rendering the nurse unconscious. But I hope she's just unconscious, because she hits her head really hard on the floor, which I think is really interesting, considering the whole idea that we're unsure if Helen is really a killer. Right. But hopefully she's just unconscious. Helen takes her uniform, and she slips out without being noticed by, of course, the professionals swarming about the hospital trying to find her. So she runs home and finds her door open with all of her shit gone and new furniture in its place. The walls are now being painted pink by Stacy. Stacy. Mm -hmm. This is a great scene. Oh my God, this scene. So (laughs) Helen approaches Stacy and she is like immediately quivering and recoiling (laughs) and acting like a little bitch. And, you know, Trevor comes out, what's the matter, honey? Did you get a boo-boo? Like, again, like infantilizing this girl. It's so fucking gross. (laughs) And Helen's like, what's the matter, Trevor? Scared of something? They have this like really tense standoff over the phone. Like, who's going to get to the phone first? Helen begins crying. It's like, you were the only thing I had left. Like, really just allowing herself to have a moment of despair, seeing that her husband like really just kind of checked her in and then checked out of Mm. the marriage. But she watches him go for the phone instead of coming to comfort her and just says it's over and leaves and Trevor calls for help. So Helen goes out and looks over the water. This reminded me of St. Maud when she gets fired from... Yes. Yeah. Just that looking over the water and she hears Candyman. He says, they will all abandon you. All you have left is my desire for you. And I'm like, ooh, toxic relationship narrative. It's Heathcliff from Wuthering Heights. This idea like he and... Oh my gosh, I forget her name. Is it Margaret? Like all they have is each other. And even after she dies, he like cries on her grave, digs up her coffin and like lays on her decomposing body. (laughs) Like so, it's so much like this. This like desperation, this all we have is each other feeling. So with this, Helen returns to the Cabrini Green apartment, enters the mirror, sees a bunch of candles lit, sees a bunch of like, I guess, spare hooks hanging on chains. Does he switch them out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, hook of the day? I don't know. (laughs) But she grabs an extra one and climbs into an attic space and sees another portrait of Candyman on the wall and gets images of his death and then sees Candyman laying on a table, which you said... Well, this is giving Dracula. Yeah. Like somebody coming into the Candyman lair to find a sleeping Candyman. It's like Dracula in his coffin. But she attempts to stab him. He wakes up and says, Helen, you came to me. Surrender to me now and he shall be unharmed. And I think this puts her under a spell because he picks her up, carries her, assures her that the pain will be exquisite. Mm. Our names will be written on a thousand walls. Our crimes told and retold by our faithful believers. We shall die together and give them something to be haunted by. Come with me and be immortal. Woo! Yeah. Meanwhile, Helen is thinking that if she dies, the baby will live, which is another thing too. So she seems like she is making this decision content with the fact that the baby will live. He begins to lift her skirt with his hook, lays her down. Yes. And then this is where we get the infamous B scene. (laughs) He is cradling her sweetly and looks like he is about to kiss her until she realizes she is covered in bees. He opens his chest, and this is where you said earlier, like, I just am so glad the villain, like, doesn't have anything goopy happening. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's (laughs) short-lived. It's short-lived. He opens his chest cavity, and it's a hive full of bees. Bees in his... (laughs) It was there. It was there. (laughs) 
<laughs> there are now bees in his mouth, and he kisses her with a mouthful of bees, which seems to sedate her. More trivia. Ooh! Was she hypnotized? Well, no, no, no. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. so she wasn't hypnotized for this, but Virginia Madsen almost turned down the movie because she was allergic <gasps> to bees. The director was like, yeah, but we're going to have a medical person nearby. Like, can't you just do it? So she went as far as to go to take an allergen test. And the allergen test apparently only proved that she was allergic to wasps. So (laughs) she was able to do the scene, but she was very much pressured into doing the scene, which kind of sucks, but it's also iconic. I mean, how much can a medical professional do if you're allergic to bees and you're stung more than... Like, I feel like if you're stung a bunch of times, you're really fucked. Well, here's some trivia. For the infamous bee scene, the actors were covered in the queen bee's scent to have the rest of the bees attracted to them once they were covered in them. The bees were then removed with a special bee vacuum after the scene was over. Which reportedly took over 45 minutes. To remove the bees? To remove the bees. Because they were covered in the queen's scent, so obviously they wanted to stay where they were at. The bees were like, no! Exactly. (laughs) The honeybees were controlled by Norman Gary, who previously handled bees on films such as 1966's The Deadly Bees, (gasps) My Girl, and Fried Green Tomatoes. The film used more than 200,000 real honeybees throughout filming, and most of the crew wore body suits to be protected from stings, although all of them faced at least one. Wow. Also, the bees were bred specifically for this movie. They needed to make sure that the bees were only 12 hours old so that they would look like mature bees, but their stinger would not be powerful enough to do real damage. Despite this, Tony Todd said he was stung about 26 to 29, the number varies from source to source, over the course of the trilogy. (laughs) Wow, so much went into the bees. So much. It seems like the bees were treated fairly well. Well, good. Rest assured, the bees were fine. Good. Bees are important. There's also a rumor. I don't know how much of this is true or how much of this is Tony Todd joking, but he jokes that he had a really good lawyer because apparently they struck a deal because they were obviously trying to convince him like, yeah, do this bee scene. He's like, well, I don't want to get stung. So his lawyer worked out a deal where he got a thousand dollar bonus every time he was stung by a bee. Yo, that is amazing. I don't know how true that is, but I've read it in a couple places and I thought that was fun. (laughs) You know, we're thinking that this is going to be the kiss of death, but it's not because after the kiss and it looks as if Candyman is about to kill Helen, finally she wakes up and she is not dead. There is a note from Candyman sprawled across the mural that she had seen earlier that says, it was always you, Helen. This is when Helen looks closer into the mural and she sees painted in the scene of Candyman's death, a woman looking on who looks very much like her. Perhaps the woman that was with his child. But before she wakes up, we see Candyman taking Anthony away, telling him it's time for a new miracle, which is telling us that he does not intend on keeping his promise. No. To keep Anthony safe. He's a liar. But Anthony is alive because Helen hears him crying. She investigates and hears the cries are coming from the bonfire pile. Oh my gosh. So she goes to retrieve him. So as Helen is trying to make her way into this massive pile, Jake, who is sleeping, wakes up, sees the hook, I guess, or a person with a hook on the pile. And then he whispers he's here and then alerts some others that Candyman is in the bonfire. Well, it's not on fire yet, but the idea is now that we know Candyman is in there, they're going to set it on fire. And it seems like kill Candyman once and for all. 
Yeah, the entire community crowds and lights it ablaze. Right as Helen finds baby Anthony in the pile, Candyman pops out mm-hmm. and restrains her in the pile as the crowd yells, burn him, burn him, burn him. He says, we must be on our way now, you and I. Our bones will soon be ashes and we shall never be separated again. I cannot let you go. We are already dead. Oh, he's such a hopeless romantic. He so is. <laughs> but Helen ends up stabbing him with a fiery stake, which obviously fires a triggering thing for him. But also it's giving another Dracula connection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he becomes trapped in the rubble as Helen crawls her way out of the fire with the baby in her arms. Her hair is on fire. Her mm. back is on fire. She is very badly burned. But Anne-Marie is able to come forward and retrieve Anthony. Candyman buzzes his way away in a swarm of bees. And Jake looks on suspiciously as the rest of the pile burns, knowing it's probably not over. So Helen dies from her injuries. The next scene, we are at her funeral. It's attended by Trevor and Stacy and some other professors that we had seen in that earlier dinner scene. But wait, just after Helen's casket is lowered into the ground, we see seemingly all of the residents of Cabrini Green arriving to pay respects. Jake approaches the burial site and drops a hook onto Helen's casket. And we see that, you know, essentially they have come, it seems like, to pay respects to Helen. From vanquishing Candyman or for saving Anthony, whatever it is. Later, we are back at the pink apartment. (laughs) (laughs) The Pepto-Bismol apartment. (laughs) It is Pepto-Bismol pink. That's perfect. Trevor is like sitting on the toilet, not going to the bathroom, but just kind of hiding in the bathroom. We see Stacy approach him, or the door rather. She is like, hey, what are you doing? He clearly does not want to come out and talk to her. She says something about maybe I'll make a nice dinner. Trevor seems uninterested. He says, yeah, sure, whatever. So she goes and starts angrily making dinner, which I think is so funny. And she's like angrily using a knife to cut up steak, which reminds me of like, she's mad at Trevor. She's angrily cutting up meat. Okay, maybe thinking about what she would like to do. As she is angrily making dinner, Trevor starts crying to himself in the bathroom, lamenting over Helen. He's having flashbacks of their time together, how happy she had made him. He starts saying, oh, Helen, 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 Helen. (laughs) He says to a mirror in the bathroom. And just then a badly burnt Helen appears on the other side of the reflection and says her amazing line, what's the matter, Trevor, scared of something? As she reaches through the mirror and slices him up the middle. The film closes with Stacy entering the bathroom and discovering Trevor's dead body and screaming bloody murder. And then credits roll as we zoom in on a new portrait in the Candyman lair in Caprini Green of Helen on fire and looking ethereal, which is giving us the idea that she is now the urban legend that haunts Caprini Green. Mm -hmm. And that's the movie. Yeah. So some post-plot stuff. This kind of talks about Candyman being seen as a romantic figure. I think this comes from IMDb. Viewers may think of Candyman as one of the horror genre's most terrifying villains, but director Bernard Rose said that the idea was always that he was kind of a romantic figure, and again, romantic in the sort of Edgar Allan Poe sense. It's the romance of death. He's a ghost, and he's also the resurrection of something that is kind of unspoken or unspeakable in American history, which is slavery as well. So he's kind of come back and he's haunting what is the new version of the racial segregation in Chicago. 
And I think there's also something very seductive and very sweet and very romantic about him, which is what makes him interesting in the same way there is about Dracula. In the end, the boogeyman is someone you want to surrender to. You're not just afraid of. There's a certain kind of joy in his seduction, and Tony Todd was always just so romantic. Tony ties him in so elegantly and is such a gentleman. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting all of this. I'm picking up on all of this. It's there. Yeah. And that is such a good point. Like, when do you get a villain that's just like, I love you? <laughs> <laughs> be with me. <laughs> like it's, it's such a different kind of motivation than I think I'm used to seeing in the movies that we watch. Or that is successful in that seduction, because I yes. think we see a lot of obsessed men or obsessive lovers in that yes. way. But somebody who is just so good at entrancing somebody, it kind of reminds me of Jennifer's body a little bit, honestly, just the way that she is able to make people do things they normally wouldn't do, but she just has this ability to like lull people into this sense of, you know, seduction in a way. I don't know. Yeah. I think the thing too with Candyman that helps him succeed in coming off as more purely romantic as opposed to obsessive or creepy, like you mentioned, is that he's not from this time. Like he really evokes that true romanticism, mm -hmm. that ghostly purity that he has he has almost hopelessly been haunting the world, which I think makes him more sympathetic as well. Like he's not just some kind of crazy obsessed man who is looking to commit these sexually motivated crimes for his own pleasure. Like it's this aged, deeply romantic motivation set in the literal romantic era. So I was interested in talking about Helen's role in all of this, because obviously I think this is one of those movies very similar to Sleepaway Camp, where it has such a storied history and it's saying a lot of things, obviously about race, about poverty. Like there's just so much literature on this movie at this point since it came out so long ago to the point where, you know, I don't feel as though I could cover everything this has to say. So I was interested in talking about being that the lens of our podcast is lady focused, talking about Helen, talking a little bit about Bernadette. So a lot of this information comes from that article I mentioned earlier, taking a look in the mirror, the inversion of middle class fears of urban decay and the representation of racial violence in Bernard Rose's Candyman by Jacob Garrett. So this talks about introducing Helen as this idea of almost like this white colonial perpetrator of segregation, violence, all of those types of things. So he writes, It is in Cabrini Green that this legacy of horrific violence, prejudice, and the American anxieties about racial divides are on full display. In her essay about the role of urban gothic in slasher films, author Stacey Abbott links Cabrini Green to the traditional conceptions of the terrible place in urban gothic, which can be described as needing a concentration of memories and historical associations, which ideally would be expressed in an extant architectural or topographical heritage, as these areas provide for ghostly presences of imagined or projected meanings. The fact that Cabrini Green was built upon the same site of that as Daniel Robitaille's Candyman's real name, lynching exhibits the systemic economic oppression and unofficial segregation of African Americans in the United States. Bernadette explicitly describes it as a ghetto at one point, means that the housing project fits into this description perfectly. We are given inklings of the complex racial dynamics at play there during the first half of the movie, such as when Anne-Marie says, you know, whites don't ever come here except to cause us a problem. Helen, unbeknownst to herself, has become a perpetrator of white colonial aggression. Although several Black women characters advise her against intruding on community spaces and disrespecting sites of death, she pushes forward with her research agenda in hopes of a publication. 
She is well-intentioned in her investigation and does not mean to cause trouble or harm, but she is still participating in the cultural norms that have oppressed Cabrini-Green by treating it merely as a space in which to freely conduct her research rather than a place filled with real people who are living in their very real homes. And I said that earlier about how she's treating it like a lab to be studied in and not a place where real actual things happen to actual people. Like she very much is intellectualizing the death of Ruthie Jean to make it fit into her narrative for the Candyman thesis. Like she all of a sudden turns into like CSI murder investigator about Ruthie Jean, not because she feels anything for Ruthie Jean to the fact where she's breaking and entering into a fucking crime scene. But she is so motivated to be as intellectually respected in the topics of urban legend as her husband, Trevor. Like, maybe she's already feeling him slip away and thinks that her coming into her academic know-how is going to give her an element of prestige that can almost graduate her to a sense of not being able to be called racist or not being Mm. able to be called. And you see this in academic spaces a lot, just from someone who's worked in higher education. Like, because you can intellectualize or make these problems, these academic words, they start to lose their meaning and you start getting further and further away from the real people being impacted by white flight, gentrification, all of those types of things. But yeah, it's very, it's like painful to like watch her be so well-intended, but unaware at the same time. It's giving Alice energy. She's like, I'm an ally. (laughs) I'm an ally. (laughs) Yeah, Helen is, I'm an ally. And like the entire time. So then talking about what does the ending mean for her? And what does that mean for her urban legend defying herself? This is from the same article. The final shots of the movie then cut and zoom in on a new mural in Cabrini Green. Helen rising from the bonfire in a swirl of flame, her head surrounded in a fiery corona, looming above the terrified people below like a vengeful spirit or god. By taking on the mantle of Candyman, Helen reversed the traditional perceptions of the history of racial violence in the United States. Instead of the original Candyman, who represented the idea of this racial violence being ignored as a serious presence by white, middle, and upper class intellectuals of the university and yet instilling great fear in the hearts of mainly african-american residents of cabrini green the movie now has helen who as a well-to-do white intellectual is emblematic of the very people who have incited and tacitly perpetuated the racial violence that has plagued american history now instead of hurting the people who have suffered from his abuse for so long helen is killing people like trevor the very individuals who denied the power of racial violence to haunt and inflict pain upon modern America and who, just 100 years ago, may have personally murdered Daniel Robitaille. This haunting also forces the white intellectuals who will whisper Helen's name and spread her story to reckon with the fact that the homes they thought were so secure and separate from the places like Cabrini Green may no longer be so safe. Perhaps they never were. The mirror images and doubling that have been on display so explicitly throughout the film are exactly what allows this fear to manifest. They blur the lines between Helen and Candyman's roles as victim and monster, and similarly blur the lines between the safety of white privilege and ignorance and the dirty realities of places like Cabrini Green. Just like in Helen's apartment, which was only one shiny veneer away from being a housing project, the pervasive fear that the white middle and upper classes have of places of suffering from urban decay has been turned on its head. It's not the projects where they can't feel safe anymore, but their own homes. The very people who would be so quick to deny Candyman even existed will now be forced to reckon with their prejudices and histories that they have for so long ignored or risk ending up like Helen and becoming a whisper in the classroom, the writing on the wall. 
Ooh, I love that. I had not thought about that. Like the way that Helen's legendifying allows her to enter more spaces, which is so cool. Even the like explicit mirror images, like the fact that mirrors are a way to transport from one area to the other, like obviously that's obvious, but the fact that Helen's home mirrors Ruthie Jean's home, the role of Candyman and Helen being both the victim and the perpetrator of violence at the same time, but to whom? Mm. It's so interesting. And that's the thing. Like, I'm not saying this movie's perfect. Like, I think this movie does have some stereotypes that it perpetuates. And like I said, there's so much literature on this movie that we can't necessarily get into and cover all at once. But I think for what it is, it is so fucking smart. And it doesn't push the themes down your throat in the way that I think a lot of movies of the 2020s are doing more expressively or maybe heavy handedly. And I don't think it's a bad thing that things are getting a little bit more explicit. But so much of this is here without having to say that it's here. Yeah, it does feel like there are intentional decisions that are made during this film, which is nice. It doesn't feel like there's filler or unnecessary pieces. Like It does feel like a puzzle that fits together as it slowly unravels the story. This unraveled in a way that I was not expecting at all ever, especially the ending. I never would have thought that we would have seen Helen in a Candyman position. I really like it. I think I'm going to be thinking about this for a long time. Like, this is going to be the kind of movie where, like, every day for a while and then eventually once a week for the rest of my life, I'm going to be like, yeah, Candyman, that was crazy. (laughs) Like, whoa, what was that about? I have to think about that some more. The last thing I'll say is I think that's something that Clive Barker just does so well in his books is even if a woman is defeated in the end or she isn't coming out in like a triumphant position, she finds this extraterrestrial power beyond the grave because Julia, even though she dies by the hands of Frank in Hellraiser, returns as the big bad in the sequel (laughs) and is like this powerful Cenobite. And the fact that we see Helen taking vengeance on Trevor and being this ethereal candy lady, you know, Mm. whoever that she is, just having this power continue after the impact of her actions. I don't know. I just think it's super powerful. And yeah, I fucking love this movie. It's so good. And it's so sweet. It is really, I love it. So romantic. Honestly, it just did everything and more (laughs) for me and my my romantic tastes. So I really enjoyed that. Especially, I don't usually get that from our horror movies. It was really nice to get it this time. But next week, we're back to some games. So if you want to keep up with our special March game, wink, wink, Nudge, nudge. Definitely follow us on Instagram if you haven't already at The Horrors Podcast. And or as always, feel free to communicate with us also at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we're The Horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.